Hello and welcome to another episode of Cloud Security Podcast. Today, I spoke about bug bounty. Yes, for people, uh, I was going to say the infamous bug bounty, but it's not really infamous. It's a good thing. I should find out about this. And I got Casey Elias from Bug Crowd, who's one of the founders of uh, Bug Crowd. And we spoke about why is bug bounty programs? What is vulnerability disclosure? Why should everyone care about it? By the way, fun fact, did you know that NIST framework from the US has a responsible disclosure program included in their check for NIST 853. So for all the compliance folks out there, it's a good thing if you want to talk about this to any of your customers. Uh, for people who are new and probably have been watching all the 16-year-old kids with Maseratis on Twitter talk about how much they made on Bounty, this is good for you guys as well because what you would realize is um, sometimes what the other side of when you disclose a vulnerability, that may or may not be the priority. But for you, it may be like this is probably earth-shattering moment. How is, is it possible that there's a cross-site scripting on a website and the people don't care? And then you go on Twitter and uh, you find all these other people disclosing it. So have some patience, I guess that's what I say. But so it was a great chat. We spoke about different aspects of Bug Bounty. The, the trust factor behind it as well and why companies of all sizes should look at doing some versions of at least vulnerability disclosure. Because by the nature of being on the internet, you're already being looked at or by spider uh, scammed by um, the folks on the internet. So it's better to do it with a trusted source or at least having a door open for we welcome we don't want to pay money for this, but at least we welcome the opportunity for uh, someone to disclose, responsibly disclose a vulnerability. That's what today's episode was about. And if also, if you're looking at getting into bug bounty, how can someone start? Uh, you can hear it straight all in the episode. Uh, as always, appreciate the feedback. And I do want to remind again that we're coming close to our 50th episode, which is going to be the last episode for this season before we come back next year. And a couple of ideas have started flowing in. One of the ideas was about doing an Ask Me Anything stream. So um, <laughs> we'll try and do that. But feel free to kind of uh, send me an email or just send me a message on LinkedIn. I'll probably, I might even try doing a vote for this on, on, on LinkedIn and see if it goes. But anyway, uh, I hope you enjoy this episode with Casey and uh, how anyone and everyone can start with Bug Bounty. I'm personally into the space as well. So if you're looking for pointers, I would love to talk about how Bug Bounty can happen in a cloud space as well, uh, whether it's AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure. Those are three that I focus on, but um, if you focus on something else, we'd love to hear about that as well. All right, enough about uh, how awesome a bug bounty space is because I think uh, Casey's doing a better job of that than I am. Let's get in the episode and I'll uh, see you in the next episode. See ya. So I've got someone who's really special and fortunately he's Australian as well. We have a local time zone that worked out. Hi Casey, how are you? Good morning, how are you? Good. Or should I say good day, mate? Considering we're in... Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you probably do it much better than I do, but I, I think it's, it's definitely warranted because I definitely crave more Australian uh, guests to come in. So this has been really good. Um, I think so, the, Casey, times, the, the, the time zone crossover between our countries is pretty convenient. So there is that. <laughs> so I'm going to start with 
something which I guess I'll, I doubt people don't know who KC is, considering the amount of, if they just Google search you, there's so many interviews that come up. And I feel you obviously are pretty well known in the space, but for people who may not know who KC is, who's KC Elias, and how did you get into cybersecurity? Who is this guy? Sure. So basically my role, what I do for work is I'm the chairman, founder, and CTO of, of the company Bug Crowd. Bug Crowd was the first to basically start this idea of, or to launch this idea of crowdsource security as a service. So we didn't invent bug bounties or vulnerability disclosure, but the idea of basically putting a platform and a group of people in the middle to help make it work, that was, that was something that we kind of initiated and it's grown quite a bit since both for us as a company and with others actually joining into the space. The other thing I'm working on at the moment is a thing called the disclose.io project, which is essentially, you know, legal standardization, a bunch of open source tooling to support vulnerability disclosure and just, you know, have companies really get used to this idea that, you know, being on the internet actually involves taking security feedback from the outside world. So how to get them ready for that and give them tools that they need, whether they work with bug crowd or whether they're, you know, just figuring out how to do it themselves or however else. So that's what I'm working on now. I got into security. I kind of tripped over and fell into it, to be honest. I, you know, as a kid, I kind of grew up like messing with technology of all sorts. My father was a science teacher, so I had computers around. And then out of high school, I got into network engineering uh, as an apprentice and, and basically started hacking stuff straight away and realized that, oh, wow, okay, the idea of being able to you know, give security feedback to organizations and actually help them understand what they need to improve is valuable. But there's a career in this, at which point kind of all my Christmases came at once because it's like I get to think like a criminal but not be one. And then it kind of went from there, really. I, I got to the point through a, a couple of different you know, roles where I got it in my head that I wanted to become an entrepreneur. So you know, quit my job, started doing that, and, and eventually had the, like, the core concept for Bug Crowd, started working on, on that, and you know, here we are. Uh, I've got a few hellos coming in. Oh, I'm glad you stumbled into cybersecurity. I, I love the fact that you've brought up the, a very interesting thing about the whole disclosure thing, which I definitely want to peel sure. a few layers of as we go into this. But I was going to start with how does someone stumble into cybersecurity? But I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go into that question because I think we'll be here for hours. I will say to that, that it is a pretty common story. I think, especially in sort of my generation of people that are working in this space, we just were doing other things. And then all of a sudden cybersecurity bubbled up as a viable career path. I think it's less true now because it's so much more obvious for people that it's something that they can directly pursue. But if oh. you wind back a little while, it's like, oh yeah, okay, I can... Yeah, I can think defensively or I can think offensively. And in context of IT, there's 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 room for that. Nowadays, security is about, you know, it's a gated community. You kind of have like to have the set path. But to your point, no one necessarily started off in cybersecurity, like directly in cybersecurity. A lot of us came from a very different background. That's m true most of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so to be, I just wanted to clear that myth out because a lot of people may just go down the assumption that everyone has to be from cybersecurity. One of the guys who's, I spoke to, actually, he's, I think he's online as well, Sam. He's a PhD holder and he was doing AI before AI was a thing. And like, you know, like you talk to people and you ask about the background and like, wow, I mean, they, 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 people like this who are in cybersecurity, why didn't I know about yeah, you yeah. before this? Yeah, totally. It's, it's a super cool field to be in because I've got a cloud security focused audience as well. And yes. I, I, know the, I remember the first time I talked to you about this, and I loved how you spoke about how cloud security... So what does cloud security mean for you? I'm just curious to know your response. 
I think cloud security means it means different things depending on you know if the company's cloud native or not. And I think when we're talking, this is you know an analogy or a kind of a marker that I use that that seems to hold true. There's almost this concept of like pre-Facebook or post-Facebook from a date standpoint. Like Facebook was founded, I think, 2008. Companies that were founded around then or after then have a tendency to be like cloud, like truly cloud native, so cloud first in their approach, which means they're also more likely to be doing things like CICD and, you know, just approaching how they deploy technology in a way that is different to those that were basically started before that period of time. You know, for the companies that are that are pre-Facebook, we're at the point where I think now, you know, everyone's basically doing something that's like cloudy. 10 years ago, I think everyone was talking about it, but, you know, only a small fraction were actually doing it. We're now at a point where everyone's doing something. So, you know, cloud security means different things for those two groups because for the, for the post-Facebook group, it's all about how do you improve things like, you know, DevSecOps, how do you you know, tighten kind of build a breaker feedback loops for your organization. So they're getting security feedback and, and are able to improve. Whereas for pre-Facebook, it's really, how do we make a digital transformation transition as an organization in a way that's deliberate, in a way that's secure, in a way that takes advantage of existing governance models, but also is like embracing of the, the future of how these sort of things get done from a security standpoint. So yep. there's a whole different set of considerations. There's a lot of the same kind of plumbing ends up being what you use, um, but how yep. you get there, I think it's very different. That's, very, that's an interesting answer. I love the Facebook analogy as well, because it's almost like one of those ones where people haven't really thought about it that way. That's why I thought it was a great answer because it kind of is true as well. Suddenly people cared about scale once Facebook became a problem. Oh, sorry, not a problem. It's still a problem, but you know you know what I mean. <laughs> a consideration. What I like about it is it diffuses because there is a bit of an us and them, or there has been historically a bit of an us and them mindset where you know folks that are cloud native feel superior or you know that folks that aren't are somehow irrelevant or obsolete and then on the other side it's like oh you guys are doing this like crazy stuff that you don't understand what running a big, big business looks like or whatever else and whenever you end up in that position where you've got two camps like failing to learn from each other because they're so busy talking about how much better their thing is there's a lot of lost opportunity associated with that so i think just tying it to a point in time actually diffuses that and and okay yeah. cool, what do we need to get done it makes it more of a productive conversation i think yeah, and I think this is actually a great segue into this whole space of crowdsourcing security as a service and bug bounty. For people who have not heard about this space, they always heard hear about bug bounty being this concept only for kids, uh, or even for, for people who are from who are CISOs listening to this. What is this space of crowdsourcing service, like a security as a model? What is the space? I think that's a really important question for <clears throat> actually for everyone. When Bugcrowd started, it was basically Facebook and Google making a big bunch of noise about their vulnerability reward program back in 2011, 2012. You know, some folks within the security industry observing that and, and becoming interested in it. And, you know, one of the reasons that we took advantage of, frankly, some of the noise that they were creating was it was just a very fast way to explain the model. Like the challenge I think that we have sometimes these days is that bug bounty as a, as a term of like art is actually a pretty specific thing, but it gets used as a term that describes all of it, which can can create some term confusion. So to your question around crowdsource security, really what it is, is this idea that as an organization, as a defender, 
you've basically got the job of like outsmarting your entire infrastructure development. I mean, even marketing sales to like everyone within your organization that, that potentially contributes to your tax surface. They're all, you know, amazing and do really great work, but they're all also human, which means they make mistakes sometimes. So mm -hmm. when those mistakes create like a vulnerable condition, you've got to outsmart that first. Then you've also got to outsmart all of the creativity that exists in this cloud of potential adversaries that want to mess with your stuff, that have lots of different skill sets, lots of different motivations, and really more of a, a drive to create a result and to find one of those weaknesses so they can do what they need to do. Your job as a defender is to basically outsmart all of the possible failure states of those two things. And you're using automation, which can help you, but it's never going to cover all of it because it's not as, it doesn't have that creative capability that both of those groups do. Yeah. And you've got, you know, Jill and Bob, the pen tester who are awesome, but they're going to lose at some point because of the math of the setup. It's actually not their fault. It's the fact that, you know, you, you can't basically, you, you're fighting an army with, with an individual that's got a completely different set of rules of engagement. So crowdsource yeah. security does is it takes this latent talent and this latent potential that exists in the good faith hacker community around the world, and it plugs it in to that gap. Uh, it's like, okay, how can you basically level the playing field out with the amount of creativity that you've got available to stay ahead of the adversary when it comes to making yourself more resilient? So when people ask you about bug bounty, what do you say? So it's almost like a slither of the space. To me, the superset concept is actually a vulnerability disclosure program, which is where an organization goes out and says, all right, internet, if you see something, say something. Yep. It's not incentive. It's not engaging. All you're really doing is actually going out and saying, hey, if you found a security issue, here's how to get that information to us. Here's what you can expect from us in terms of how we respond to you and how we work with that information. And thank you very much. Basically, there's accountability associated with that and all sorts of things. It's one of the things with, you know, BugCrowd facilitates that through the platform because obviously you've got to handle the information, get it to the right places inside your business and make sure that, you know, you're spending more time dealing with signal and noise. But part of what we do with Disclose.io as well is to make sure that, you know, things like Safe Harbor are put in place for both sides because, mm -hmm. you know, we're working with 30 years of backstory of this just being illegal by default. So when you get to the point where you're actually wanting to try to get the information from the good guys, how do you do that in a way that helps you feel like you're staying safe from a legal standpoint? And how can they do that without feeling like they're going to get their door kicked in? So that's phone disclosure, right? Bug bounty is when you add basically a reward to that. So it's still the open internet, but what you're doing is you're adding a reward to basically say, hey, if you're the first to find a unique issue, you'll get paid for that issue, depending on how impactful it is, how important it is. And, you know, that's, it's partly a thanks thing, but it's also partly to drive and encourage like proactive testing. So you switched from just listening reactively to actually becoming proactive and incentivizing it, right? Mm. Both of those examples, really what it looks like is you're actually going out to as broad an audience as possible and saying, hey, tell me stuff. When you get into crowdsource security, that's where what you're starting to do is to take what companies like BugCrowd understand of what skill sets exist in the crowd, like who can be trusted to do what. You don't necessarily want like an enthusiastic rookie getting privileged access to do security testing because they might not have the professionalism to actually 
conduct themselves properly. Like they might not be yep. malicious, they might just not be mature enough for that kind of responsibility yet. So there's all sorts of examples. It's really our job to actually understand who sits where on, on which spectrums and then to be yep. able to say, okay, here's the thing you need to get done. Here's a group of people that are best suited to do it based on the data that we have. Let's engage them and and get you, you know, security feedback according to what you need. That's an interesting one, Casey, for me, because I found it always... Now, since NIST has added responsible disclosure, it's always made it even more better. Yeah, well, at awesome. least for some people, not for everyone, but for some people, there's still some people who are on the fence. They're like, how do I control this? Where do they... And people on the fence, like, uh, how do you go... I guess, make them comfortable. Yeah, and I've spent a lot of time really making people comfortable and helping be prepared to do all this stuff well. I think it did a really good job. I actually wrote up an article about it because I know a, a bunch of the policy people that were working behind the fence on actually putting that together. And I think they did a really good job of actually explaining <clears throat> the true nature of vulnerability disclosure in general, like vulnerability disclosure as a superset concept. You know, crowd knows things, company needs to know things, how do you make that successful? And one of the things they call out in there is that you know, vulnerability research from both bad actors and good actors is going to happen whether you solicit it or not. So I think you know, one of the pieces that I spend a lot of time trying to get people to kind of understand is that you actually can't control what the internet does. I think a historical mindset that if you just tell the internet not to do something, <clears throat> it'll listen. And, and mm -hmm. that becomes a viable way to control its behavior. I don't think it ever really was true, but it's becoming more obviously untrue as we go along. Hackers are going to find where your problems are, really whether you ask them to or not. There's, there's a group of them that are actually doing that in order to try to help you out and they're not malicious. You know, how about you try to get the report so you can do something about it. That's that's kind of the the starting point. To me, it's almost more of a physics problem than than one of like, do I want to decide to engage or not? It's like, no, as a security practitioner, I think even as a cloud engineer, at some point in your career, you're going to have to deal with figuring out how to receive proactive or sorry, reactive security input from the outside world. Like I'm just convinced at this point that that's something that everyone's going to have to figure out what to do about at some yep. point in their career. So you can either choose to wait until that happens and figure it out on the fly and possibly under duress, or you can choose to start to get proactive about it and figure out how to, you know, build what you do with that information into your development cycles and all those other good things that can happen. So that's how it's I, that's how I talk about the public stuff. Yeah. It's almost one of those ones where you keep your friends close, but enemy closer kind of a thing. It's like, you know how hackers have that negative yeah. space that, oh, it's a, it's a hacker, there's definitely a bad guy or girl, I guess. It, it can be helpful to think of it like that, uh, uh, trying to sort of give some comfort because there's this idea that it's like a locksmith versus yeah. a burglar. If you can manipulate a security control on a house, there is a well-understood good faith use case for that knowledge. Um, yep. that we all trust because locksmiths have been a thing for a couple of hundred years, right? The the whole idea of the digital equivalent of that, collectively, we're all pretty early in the process of getting used to that. And, you know, historically, I think, you know, partly because it's more interesting to write about bad people doing bad things than it is to talk about the good faith. There is this assumption that hackers are automatically bad people, which is fundamentally untrue. To me, it's more uh, around yeah, this idea of like, when you talk about neighborhood watch, that's one of the reasons I use that as an analogy to try to get people 
conceptually across what's actually going on because it's like yeah this is actually not about whether they're good or bad like the internet honestly your software doesn't care whether the people who find a bug in it are good or bad like it's agnostic mm -hmm. to that it's yep. it's it's really a question of if that's coming from someone who's acting in good faith who actually wants to help you are you able to receive that information so you can act on it that's the that's the part that matters yeah, I, I love the analogy of a neighborhood watch. Once you mentioned the locksmith concept, made me think that actually the locksmith profession would have gone through a similar thing. Like we're not burglars trying to figure out your lock beforehand. Absolutely. Just here to help. Yeah. I mean, doctors went through the same thing. There's all sorts of examples in history where there's been a skill set or an understanding of things that has been novel and immediately dismissed as either quackery or like sorcery or something that's just dangerous and it's had to go through this period of basically education where people realize oh, it's just the normal part of how things work like how do we actually take advantage of that and i feel mm. like hacking like offensive computer security skills have really seen a lot of action in that area over the past you know five or six years in particular even uber has challenged the norm like <laughs> people used to teach us don't hit a stranger's car now we sit in a stranger's cars like we welcome the opportunity and pay money to do this so it's like yeah i think it's a very yeah, different well, I, and then and you got COVID. we've all been forced into this the great zero trust experiment is is how i'm referring to COVID in some ways because there's a lot of people getting a crash course in how to become comfortable with technology in a way that they were able to delay up until you know march of this year and now we're yeah. all pretty much on a level playing field. So it's, it's, I think, really challenging existing assumptions of what trust actually means uh, and how to engage it, as well as understanding how critical and kind of integrated technology is into everyday life. It's like, this is just a part of the fact that you can't necessarily hit someone over the back of the head with a newspaper if they're screwing up doesn't mean that you can't trust them. And I think a lot of people are having those assumptions challenged at the moment, which ultimately is a good thing. It was going to end up that way anyway. It's just yeah, you know, the pandemic to me has accelerated that process. No, it, it definitely has. And I think maybe it's worthwhile calling out as well. So we spoke about bug bounty, vulnerability disclosure, but is this like only for big companies? Like if I've, I've got a few folks in here who have their own startups, yeah. who are some of them have cybersecurity startups as well. Like, is, is this a concept which is only for, say, big companies like you know, the banks and or can someone who's a startup today can start on this as well and take advantage? Vulnerability disclosure, I think, is is ultimately look at you look at NIST, you look at the you know binding operational directive 2001 in the United States, which is talking about every federal agency running a vulnerability disclosure program. You look at stuff coming out of the EU and even some of the things that are being talked about in Australia around like IoT policy. It's very quickly at this point, I think, from a top-down pressure standpoint, becoming an expected part of being on the internet. And it really comes down to almost like a, a core product safety principle. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, you've got a product. If there's a way of identifying that there's an improvement that needs to be made to the safety of that product, it's your responsibility as an organization to be able to actually get that input and then figure out how you're going to act on it. Yep. It's kind of heading in that direction, right? So I think vulnerable disclosure is is relevant and ultimately should be proactively engaged by companies of any size because it's just going to be a part of being on the internet. It's quickly moving in that direction now. I think for bug and bounties, that's a subset. Like I, I actually don't believe that's the idea of like proactively doing the like come at me bro thing to the entire internet is a good decision for every company to make. 
to the general public because you know you might have work to do on your ability to remediate or, or your existing defenses or there's all sorts of different reasons why I think that's that's a decision that needs to be made far more carefully. We actually talk people out of of doing public bug bounties sometimes because they come in all excited for their for their TechCrunch article and it's like you're really not ready for this and you actually shouldn't because mm. it'll be a negative experience for everyone involved. And then this crowdsource security model that we talked about, so these three layers, VP, yep. bug bounty, and then crowdsource security. I think crowdsource security is something that pretty much any organization can actually get an advantage from because ultimately it's hard to hire security people. Like that was one of yep. the reasons I started Bug Crowd was this concept of, you know, we talked about the the math of it before. The backdrop to that is that there's just not enough security people to go around. So how do you get better access to the talent that you need for the things that you need to get done? Yeah, just on that, I've got I've got a question from David here. How do you make sure you're not painting a big bullseye on your back by inviting the internet on your site? I think there's two things. We already talked a little bit about the fact that like this is happening anyway. If you look at your if you look at your logs, if you look at your software, like people are hacking it right now. There's, there just isn't a way for them to get the information about what they find to you necessarily. So I think it's important to give that concept a nod as a precursor. There's a couple of ways, like how not to paint a big bullseye on your back. What we really strongly advocate is this idea of like crawl, walk, then run. So to be able to start slowly, you know, either using a private program as an on-ramp or just not promoting it. You can launch a vulnerability disclosure program and create an intake channel without putting it up on a aggregation site like bug crowd or, or doing a big article about it you don't have to do that so it's like it gives you an opportunity to kind of ramp up figure out what your risk posture actually looks like you know what your remediation ability looks like all of those sorts of things before you start to dial up and let people know it's there that's really i think a big a fairly important consideration in terms of the transition and then you know if you're talking about bug bounties and, and crowdsourcing it's really this idea of being able to basically incentivize input from experts so that you can close these vulnerabilities off. Ultimately, if you do that ramp period right, then you know, you're actually getting, it's like the crowd's got your back at that point. Like what they've given you is, is according to the intelligence and the firepower that exists in the good faith community, which should put you in a more resilient position for yep. when, the, when, when the bad actors rock up. To on to this to your point about earlier, it's not just a big company thing as well. Sourcing may not be the big first obvious step you should take because there's a lot of work that comes with it as well. So you kind of need like, should I run my startup or should I manage a responsible disclosure program? You probably want to yeah. balance that out. There are a few, you know, few things people can do to begin with. Is like, yeah. are there like things that don't take too much effort, but you at least have almost like a door slightly open to say, hey, I, I'm okay with you disclosing that I have a vulnerability, but just do not attack yeah. me and do not go come at me, bro, as uh, Paul mentioned. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I mean, security.txt is good. I, I think having an active security mailbox and then, and then honestly, you know, finding some sort of way to, to check it and, and, and having a process for that because usually those things get set up and then promptly ignored because they do get a lot of, like spam and craft. I actually don't think that's a good way, but if you're talking about for a startup that just needs to do something, it's fairly cheap, do something kind of step to take. I think from a policy standpoint, 
you know, Disclose.io, part of what that is, vulnerability disclosure, policy standardization. So, so we've mm-hmm. set it up in a way that, you know, if your legal team has, has, you know, they've got to get their head around this whole concept, it creates a really good starting point for that. But for organizations that can afford to just copy and paste, it's good to go for that, for that use as well. So that, that becomes really your terms of engagement. And there's stuff in there like, don't DDoS my site to try to test it. Like you're not proving anything, please don't. And, you know, different things like that, where, <clears throat> you know, you're starting to set expectations on your end. Yeah, I do think there's also this idea of, of basically saying, hey, this is reactive. I'm not actually authorizing you to test. But what I am saying is that if you if you find something and you send it to me, this is how you can expect me to behave. Yeah, I think actually going out and authorizing testing is is a safer place for for you as an organization and for the researchers, because at that point they're actually not necessarily breaking most of the anti-hacking laws that exist to try to help you out. And there's no fear of that, even if they found a bug like by accident, which is a thing as well. But yeah, those those are so security text and inbox, you know. Bugcrowd works with startups. There's, there's, you know, things that you can do to to wrap platform and process around it in a way that can help you actually administer these programs. But you're absolutely right. As a, you know, as an early startup, your your biggest risk is your next payroll, not necessarily like launching a vulnerable disclosure program. So you got to balance yeah. that out. So we've kind of spoken about the good and the bad, possibly the ugly of uh, bug bounty programs and what comes with it if you're not prepared to start up a bug bounty. Now, if you're starting, I've got folks who are new to cybersecurity space as well. In this yeah. space. Now, they're like, they've Googled this, they've seen all the Twitter images, all these 16-year-old kids with a Maserati and all that. So... Where do people it's like that? like two of them? It's just they get promoted a lot. So oh, right, right. Fair enough. Because <laughs> is that only a new kid in the block thing? Or can old folks like myself and others can join in? We like helping people celebrate when they find a really good issue and they get paid well for it because it's it's awesome. It's an achievement and you should be able to, you know, get excited about it. I think like doubling down on it and and you know, de-anonymizing young people and and telling the world about how wealthy they are. I think that's actually pretty unwise because mm-hmm. frankly, when I was that age, I probably wouldn't have known quite what to do with that. Cause it's, it's one of those things where it's like, no, that that's objectively awesome and you should be proud of it. But there's so much kind of success bias in, in how that stuff gets amplified and promoted that it kind of implies that this is all super easy. And all you got to do is like watch a few <laughs> YouTube videos on how to hack. And, and all of a sudden you're going to be a 15 year old with a Maserati, which is not, yeah, true. Like, it, it's, it's not, it's not how it works. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think managing that sort of expectation gap is really important whilst also, you know, giving credit where credit's due and, and you know, letting these folks oh, yeah. have, their, have their day in the sun. So it's a, it's a weird one. But yeah, I mean, for starting out, I think it, it really comes down to understanding what parts of, of offensive security you're best at that excite you the most. You know, some folk come in like this whole idea of, of being able to, you know, spray the entire internet for XSS and make a bunch of money out of bug bounty programs. You know, we've been doing that for long enough now that the internet's figured out that it needs to solve its XSS problem, which was, mm-hmm. you know, the, the original goal in the first place. Yes. So, so those sorts of things are becoming more difficult. Like low-hanging fruit gets kind of progressively cleared out as new folk join into the space, as as new kind of systemic issues get identified by the crowd. And then, you know, people start to teach each other. Everyone starts doing the same thing. 
the problem gets kind of shaken out at a systemic level and then it gets difficult and people move on to a new thing. That's sort of how mm. it works. So yeah. like recon, yeah. for example, when we started, <clears throat> I think, you know, security folk have always known that people don't know where their, their assets are on the internet. There's like this combination of legacy assets that have been forgotten and shadow IT and stuff like that, which is more of a, a cloud security problem. That was a known issue. What wasn't obvious was how bad it was. And one of the incentives in, in a bug bounty model in particular is to be the first to find a unique vulnerability. So what you ended up with was all these researchers creating tooling and workflows to pretty much like look for assets that have most likely been forgotten. Uh, and there was a lot there. So this is where mm. this whole kind of recon space was actually born. It was a bunch of bounty hunters realizing that it was a great way to make money and identify vulnerable assets. Yeah. And it's still an issue. I think it's actually a really good space. It's a really good place for people to start because there's, I think, going to be a never ending shortage of things on the internet that have been put there hastily or, or carelessly because we, we've got to build our businesses and get stuff done. So sometimes we do that in ways that have you know, security, like not as a high priority. And there's a lot, there's a lot to find, right? So that's a practical way for people to get started and, and just understand kind of internet scale research. But then diving into things like if, you know, people that one of my favorite things is when people come in from like an engineering background or like a IT networking, like electrical engineering, you know, radio, like people that have built cars their entire life and then suddenly realize that car hacking is a thing. Mm. Uh, and they, they take this like contextual technology experience, marry it with security and this kind of, oh, I love hacking stuff because it kind of feels like a game. And then all of a sudden they're really good at a particular niche domain that's actually really valuable. Like that's, I love it. I love it when that happens. Cause it's just, you can't, we try as hard as we can to encourage it, but you can't necessarily always predict when it will happen. So I think for people wanting to get in, it's just a matter of like understanding what switches you on. What are the things that you, you enjoy the most and, and where are you going to be most productive? I think it's a great advice. I was looking at all the different segregation that you guys have as well, where you have web, API, cloud. Uh, I was talking to a bug bounty hunter who basically just looks for bounties in Google Cloud Space. That's her focus. And what she was telling, I think it was, her name is Kat. And Kat was telling me that the space of finding bugs in Google Cloud is only nine months old. That, that whole space is just nine months yeah. old. Bounty hunting. Yeah. So it's so for people who are listening in to this world, like, oh, bug bounty is only if you're great at cross-site scripting or CSRF or XSRF or like, but there's almost like to, to exactly what you said, there's almost like these niches where yeah. you're really good at car hacking. That That's a niche right there. You can still reach out to Ford or whoever and tell them about yeah. the vulnerability they have. We've got a ton of embedded programs like working with... You know, the neck gears of the world and, and and folk like that on the consumer IT side, but then doing hardware work with the Department of Defense. Yeah, you know, there's this incredible variety of domains where you can apply this. And even, you know, this whole idea of like SAS misconfiguration that, that your friend's talking about, like again, it's this area of like systemic failure or systemic risk that exists on the internet. And, you know, it's like having its oh shit moment. So it's like, oh, wow, a lot of people have made that mistake. How do we go yeah. out and, and find when that's happened and actually try to give them a heads up so that they can fix it? This is why I keep on drilling into this idea of like finding the things that you enjoy most and that you're best at. 
you know, partly it's collision avoidance from a competitive standpoint in the same way as, you know, you do when you were trying to figure out a career path, right? It's like, I'm not going to go to university to study, to do the exact same thing that everyone else is doing, because that's going to make it more difficult for me when I go to get a job. There's a similar principle I think in play here because there's, you know, a lot of folks that, that bone up on kind of core, you know, almost like basic web app security which is great. It's a good starting point, but there's a lot of people doing that. So if you want to be in a position where you can kind of find some clear air and actually like operate on, on domains that are interesting to you, then finding your niche, I think is a really good thing to do. I a hundred percent great advice there as well, man. It definitely makes me feel anyone can join in as well because all of us, especially the experienced folks have found a niche already. Like that's yeah. why you're getting paid for what you're doing as well. It's just a matter of going, looking around and like, oh, I can do bug bounty in this space. Because a lot of people have these side projects. I know folks who are always tinkering with one of those uh, LG television with internet connections and, and it, like IoT devices is a space as well. And you almost go, wow, you can just go bounty hunting in any space because it's still, it's A, it's exciting because you're already interested in it. So you just go on yeah. the next level, like how do I go about breaking this? So I think it's a great advice, man. The same is true if you're just getting started. You know, I, I think like I'm a big believer in the product of nature and nurture. Everyone has has their own set of wirings that that fit best into particular things that are just going to work for them. And if you've got an appetite, you know, if you get a sparkle in your eye when you talk about hacking things, that's a really good starting point. It, it then becomes a question of, okay, you know, where are the different areas of, of expertise and like practically how I use that best fit in with how I'm wired as a human being, that's going to make me feel fulfilled and satisfied and be productive and actually do, you know, create valuable output, all that sort of stuff. Like the pursuit yep. of potential is something personally, I, I really believe in and it fits into this, I think quite neatly. Yeah. And I've got a few comments coming in as well. Paul, I'm always disappointed when I approach companies with security issues I've found organically, especially true here in Australia or Oz. Obviously, this is outside the scope of a company that is involved in a bug bounty program, which intrinsically means the company is being proactive. So how do we start to fix the ostrich head in sand mentality for these less mature organizations outside of the increased regulatory fines? Because I think it's got a follow up just to saying mandatory notification here in Australia and for the matter globally is a joke and is mostly ignored. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's shout out to ostrich risk management. That's a phrase I use a lot <laughs> and it's nice seeing it pop up. Yeah, I, I think, you know, to, to me, like something that, this is another thing I like about, you know, vulnerability disclosure and, and public bug bounty models is that, you know, they are a security concept that the average consumer has a hope of understanding. Like if you talk about, you know, EDR or, you know, set up Kubernetes governance frameworks for security, other, you know, more technical stuff, you're going to lose, you know, Joe and Jane internet fairly quickly. But this idea of like, yeah, no, we've got this like army of, of people that work in good faith and, and we've basically set up neighborhood watch for our stuff to keep you as the user safer. That's a concept that the average customer can understand. So I think, you know, one of the things that that I spend a lot of time thinking about how to like double down on in my space, but I think in cybersecurity just in general is like, how do we actually stop all of this activity being 
an insurance policy to protect downside and actually start to turn it into something that that is a carrot and not necessarily a stick. A lot of security spends its time being the stick and and we should, like I'm not saying that that's wrong, but it clearly is limited in its effectiveness. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, things like what Paul just called out wouldn't be as true as they are. So it's like, how do you, how do you turn it into something that, you know, a company can actually use to, to basically differentiate itself? Like how, how can they go out and say, Hey, here are the different things that I'm doing. You know, Mr. And Mrs. Customer, like when you're choosing between me and all of the other options you've got, if you've got data safety and security and the security of your product in the back of your head, maybe you should choose mine. I feel like we're at a point where that's actually starting to work. You know, this is it, it and it wasn't true five or six years ago, but we're now at a mm-hmm. stage where, you know, the average citizen on the internet is vaguely concerned about being hacked that they, they might not necessarily know what that means um, or, or how it works, but they know they're like worried about it. And and what they lack is the ability to, <laughs> what, what they lack is the ability to actually change their behavior in order to, you know, take control of that concern and actually manage that risk. So I think all of that to say that I do think, you know, vulnerable disclosure and, and bounty, like the public signaling stuff is a really good way to, you know, basically help customers become more confident in your product, which then becomes an easier sell to an organization. At that point, they're like, oh, okay, you're going to help me sell more stuff. All of a sudden that becomes a, a far more, you know, productive and interesting conversation to have as a security champion than, you know, our usual starting point of like, we're going to make ourselves, you know, less likely to get hacked a little bit more if we do this thing. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'm going to probably flip the table a bit on this. Like, so for people who are our peers and colleagues who are listening to this as well, I'm going to include everyone who's listening, all the thousand guys, a thousand guys and girls are going to listen to this as well. Like, how can we help in making this like a safer space that, that people can, you know, come out and talk about this, I guess, without feeling that, oh, I'm disclosing everything about my company. There's a lot of education that still needs to take place. I think, you know, going back to this idea of ostrich, you know, risk management. I love um, it, by the way. Yeah, I think think one of the fundamental issues that organizations and, and the internet just in general has is this idea that I can't admit to having any weaknesses or any, any issues in my staff. Like I've, I've got to operate with this communication and with this security model that, that suggests that I've got absolutely everything buttoned down and anything that's changing is because I've decided that it should change. That's just untrue. Like, it's, and it goes back to what we're saying at the start where like people write code, people deploy software. We do all we can to facilitate it. And if we're negligent or if we're making the same mistakes over and over again, then yes, that's a problem. Like you shouldn't be doing that. But this core idea of like, yeah, things are going to happen that are outside of your control. How do you figure out when that happens, how to actually, you know, tactically mitigate the risk and then how to learn from it to actually improve your resilience moving forward on an ongoing basis, which of course goes back to the pre and post Facebook conversation we're having before, because it's easier for post Facebook companies. I think that's where we need to kind of try to drive and encourage people's mindsets to, to end up. The companies that you associate with being really secure are almost always companies that have actually gotten across this hump. They're like, okay, transparency and, and continuous feedback into our security process, even from the outside world, is is a part of us being intellectually honest about how difficult it is to build software perfectly. Yep. 
and that's okay. Here are all the things that we're going to do about that. And this is how we're going to continually improve on, on this. The sooner we can get to a point where that's a normal way that folks think, I think launching a Vuln disclosure program in particular, like offering safe harbor to researchers, what that signals and what I love about it so much, apart from the fact that it stops my buddies from going to jail or feeling like they might, <laughs> is that it kind of validates the fact that, yeah, okay, this used to be criminal, but we're actually creating a carve out for people that are trying to do this type of thing in order to help us, as long as they stay within the guidelines that we set that, that define what good faith actually looks like. That even that as a statement is is almost like an admission of of like okay yeah it's this is a team sport we actually need help we want to operate with transparency you know that actually becomes something that I think a company can turn into a really assertive statement of mm. of you know where things are up to and the role the hacker community plays really is the internet's immune system in identifying where where weakness exists and being able to provide that feedback so I think to your question how can we help it's the more of that that can happen the better. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, bug crowd can help with that bug crowd benefits from that. There's, there's a degree of company self-interest directly in that advice. But I think more broadly than that, we benefit from it because it just becomes a thing where, you know, companies are, are comfortable with hackers and the input that exists out in the community. Yeah. And honestly, it's the thing that I just want to see happen from, from principle standpoint. It's something that I believe in very deeply. I think I agree with you on this. And I, I, I understand the fact that it's not easy as well to kind of jump into the space because you also spoke, touched on the fact that there's a lot of work involved as well. The moment you come out or you don't have to even announce yourself by nature of being on the internet, you're already being spammed by people. I have a vulnerability. Do you want it? And it's almost like, yeah. are you trying to blackmail me? Or, you know, but, but, yeah. and I, I joke about that thing, but for a lot of people, it's a reality. And yeah. I guess... It's also a, a space where people kind of like the more they share among each other as to, but I do want to look out for people who are genuinely sharing something which is valuable and all they yes. want to do is they want to do the right thing, not yeah. trying to blackmail no, you. A hundred percent. And it's, you, you call out an interesting phenomenon. This is, this is something that, you know, bug crowd's done a lot of work on in like educating people that are engaged with us from the community on our platform, but also just trying to basically you know, foster this concept of like what good, you know, sportsmanship looks like in the hacker community in general. Yeah, you know, the problem that you end up with is is folks that come in, they've got really good intent. Then yep. there's not a malicious bone in their body, but their enthusiasm actually trips them over and and can be interpreted as potentially hostile on the receiving side. And that happens all yep. the time. Cause because if like organizations aren't ready to have this conversation if you come in you know without some of the empathy for what you know is involved in building and maintaining software looks yep. like then it's pretty easy to just oh i found the xss like this is the most important thing on the planet you need to drop <laughs> everything and listen to me right now and it's frustrating because that's actually coming oftentimes from a pretty well-intentioned place but it's yep. inappropriate it's immature it actually you know frankly disrupts the discourse because you were doing something else before that email came in. So how do we educate the community at scale to have a better understanding of what it's actually like to, to run a company, to build software, to do all that sort of stuff and to be on the receiving end of these things. I, I think Maybe honestly, I empathy, empathy and expectation alignment is, is almost every time the key to making this stuff successful and productive. And it just yeah. takes time. It takes effort. 
on on everyone's part to actually invest in that which yep. you know given all of the other stuff we're busy with is not always not always easy to do yeah and i think it's really interesting because i've always find I mean, it's such a human psychology thing as well into this, right? I joked about the fact that there are 15, 16-year-old kids who are driving around Maseratis. And as an adult, well, they're adults as well. But every, when, when you see them, you like almost feel like, oh, I could have that as well. It should be easy. And you go on Google or YouTube and like start searching bug bounty. You kind of go into that rabbit hole. And to your point, you've learned a few tricks from some of those tutorial videos. And you're just basically spamming the internet. And, and yeah. to your point, the la- lack of empathy also comes from the fact that they're not thinking long-term at that point. So if someone's listening into this, there's almost like a long-term play here as well, right? You don't want to just do it once and never do it again. Yeah, absolutely right. You want to be in a position where you develop a reputation that <clears throat> that serves you well from a career standpoint. And so you can you know <clears throat> keep your lights on, do all the things that you want to do. But also that, you know, helps the actual problem itself. And ideally that, that becomes something that, you know, your peers and, and, and people that are kind of coming in behind you from an experience standpoint can learn from. I think if you can nail all three of those things, then you're like right down the center lane and actually being, you know, a very powerful contributor to, to all of this in a way that's, it's going to make you money. It's going to like further your career it's going to do all of the things that that we all need to think about from a self-interest standpoint and and keep in the mix but also that can add a bunch of good on top of that i I think think yeah i think optimizing for that kind of win is is something that you know everyone can do and it's pretty practical too i think i had daniel measler in my last episode we spoke about continuous monitoring and how do you do bug bounty at scale yeah for people who may not have checked that i'll definitely recommend checking that episode out because it spoke about the fact that you don't have to have like a really super P4 level bug, you can have like multiple P2, P3 level bugs and still make decent income out of it. I've I've got another question here. Can you share more about bug bounties? The one that went wrong, if any. Ooh, I don't know. Can you? Yeah, I can talk in general terms. Most of the examples I can think of when it's gone wrong, when organizations have kind of gone off half-cocked or not align themselves internally. That's a Mm. big one. So the idea of like, okay, we're going to start a program. There's a security team that, or a product team that go, go gung ho. Oh, actually the worst is when it's the marketing team driving it. Cause they want to, they want to go out oh. and do the big press announcement, but they haven't necessarily clued in the legal or the support team of, of what's about to happen. Oh. It's, it's those sorts of things where like the internal alignment around, yeah, we're going to start to, you know, this is specifically for bug bounty. We're, we're going to start to like actively solicit security feedback from the outside world. So Everyone needs to be, you know, aware of that. It's not like, oh my God, batting down the hazards. It's more just like make sure everyone's everyone's across it. Otherwise, they're all going to think that, you know, it's it's the invasion, and they've got to like, you know, get their dukes up and get the guns out. Um, <laughs> that that still happens. It used to it used to happen a lot. I think when you know bug bounty kind of got a pretty big tailwinds and, and got very topical all of a sudden, you know, around sort of 2015 or so, at which point there was a whole lot of this going on. There was people just jumping in and doing stuff and not necessarily, you know, planning ahead and thinking it through in a way that was going to get them the best output from it that they could get, but also, you know, be respectful of the community that's trying to help out. Yeah. So there's that. I mean, I think, you know, one of the funny stories I tell from from early bug crowd days was we ran a charity program. So I got approached by a charity saying, oh, you know, can you help us out? 
I'm like, yeah, we'll, we'll do it for free, but what are you going to offer? What are you going to offer the crowd? And like, well, we don't have anything to spend on this. So we, we basically said, look, let's experiment with the idea of, you know, like a charity point system or a charity badge for people that contribute yeah. when, when it's, they know they're not going to get paid. And it was a, it was an organization that was involved in basically combating sex trafficking in Southeast Asia, which is, which is right. an awesome cause to support and to secure as well yeah. for obvious reasons. That's right. Yeah. And when we launched the program, like the, the response was so strong that we, we actually knocked them off the internet. It was, it was like, cause they were, you know, a small organization. It was like fairly underpowered sites and different things like that. And we were pretty inexperienced in terms of running these things for smaller organizations at the time. We've learned a lot about that since, but at this time, I think it was the third or fourth program. We like, we actually knocked them over for a period of time and had to wave the white flag. So that was like, it's a negative bug bounty story, but the reason I like telling it was that like, oh, these are like bad hackers who you can't trust and who want to blow up your computer and do all these nasty things to you that are turning up in such force to protect folk that are trying to fight sex trafficking that they actually knock that website off the internet. I actually think that's kind of cool. So I think so as well. Yeah. And I think it <laughs> yeah. kind of goes to show as well, the fact that it's already happening. You probably are better off just making it like a friendly welcome rather than like never find out about it until you, you know, get, some kind of a brand effect from it so definitely a great story by the way i got a question yeah. here from sam as well how do economics and the game theory play into the crowd sourcing bug bounty scene do researchers <clears throat> look for other outlets when companies have bounties that feel aren't fairly aligned with the value of the bug or the work how mm -hmm. do companies fund the sweet spot of payments yeah, for sure. It's a fantastic question. The answer is yes. Hunters, you know, hunters have their own kind of, you know, mental cost of activation for want of a better way of putting it. It's like, okay, how much, how much is it going to take to get me out of bed and, and, and working on this? On, a on Maserati this or, a, or, a, or a charity kind of, point. Yeah. And, it, and it's, and it's, or, or, you know, like 50 bucks for XSS or yep. there's a, there's a spectrum, right? Yeah. And I think it's different for every individual because they've all got different like personal economic circumstances, like purchase power parity comes into play. You know, someone who's, who's doing this out of, you know, India or the Philippines is more impacted comparatively by a $500 payout than someone who lives in Melbourne or, or San Francisco. And that's just, that's like arbitrage and global economics in play there. So it's, you know, there's those sorts of things that factor into it, but then there's also, you know, the awareness a hunter has of how valuable or rare their skill set might be. So people that can do really sophisticated work on, on, you know, unique targets or even sophisticated work on, on kind of more common targets like cloud environments and web, you know, over time they get to actually know that and, and they'll start to basically self-select. So it's effectively a marketplace when you're talking about game theory, like vulnerability economics is, I geek out for hours on that and I won't do that right now but you know other than to say that it is a marketplace where really the job is to create an incentive that's going to attract the skill like ultimately a marketplace like the value of a thing is determined by what the seller will sell that thing for based on what the buyer is paying that's how you know marketplace value gets set so the question of like how do you find the sweet spot yeah, it, it really becomes a matter of, you know, we, we do a lot of work on this around um, 
you know, we've got a, a vulnerability rating taxonomy that brackets uh, vulnerability impacts with a, a second piece that we use called the defensive vulnerability pricing model. Based on the type of organization you are, this is roughly where you should be thinking you should start. So that's kind of how we do it. One of the reasons for that is that you can always put your prices up. It's much more difficult to to put them down, especially in a public program. You want to try to avoid that gap in expectation. It is possible if you need to do it, but it's better if you can avoid it. So what we Ooh. recommend is working out where to start in a way that's going to get the ball rolling. And then from that point, you figure out, you know, what you need to increase. So if, if for a period of time, you know, you're getting a whole bunch of like priority one issues and your price is set at $5,000 and then that starts to taper off as you're fixing things, you make it more difficult to find a priority one issue. All of a sudden you end up in this spot where that it's like a, you know, a fireproof safe rating. It's like you buy a fireproof safe you know, this passport, a passport in this thing will last for six hours at 1400 degrees Fahrenheit. And I'm still yep. in Fahrenheit because I've been in San Francisco. <laughs> I was going to say, like, yeah, what's that in Celsius? But I, can't, no, 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 I get the picture. I, I don't know anymore. It's a thing. Um, <laughs> it's hot. It becomes, you know, a proxy for resilience. So, okay, if, if now that, you know, you've made your fireproof safe more fireproof, okay, how hot does it need to be to, to burn the passport? That's yep. when you put your rewards up. So this is this is something that you know the platform helps with from a data standpoint. Something that we help with as a team. I talk about this a lot, just around you know offensive versus defensive vulnerability economics. Because in certain areas, you've got you know attackers that want to figure out the answer to this question as well. That's not true all yep. the time, but you know for some products and some organizations, it is. There's there's a lot to it. I think. Yeah, it, I mean. It, I kinda... it, it kind of goes really well into the next comment that came from Sam as well, where he's curious about the juicy uh, bug being, well, am I better off disclosing it to a third party versus disclosing it to the actual company? Like, you know, there is kind of like have to find a balance there as well. So thoughts on that? This is one I keep, I've kept a really close eye on in terms of just, you know, keeping company with folk in the broker space to understand the mechanics of that and understanding usage. Probably the big thing is that, you know, vulnerabilities that exist in, in platforms so so in places where you know there's one point of detection and one place for fix there hasn't historically been an active offensive market for those things up until about two or three years ago and it's starting to become a thing now but oh. it's still very it's still very early it's a different story for products so if you're talking about you know a mobile handset you're talking about like you know, Adobe software, Microsoft software, like Oracle, you know, Java, like all of those different things that you hear about as, as target for nation state actors uh, in particular, or even for, for kind of garden variety cyber criminals, there is a, there is a pretty mature and active offensive market for, for those types of vulnerabilities. Cause obviously they can, they can monetize them for whatever, yeah. you know, monetization means if it's a nation state, you're completing your mission. If you're a cyber criminal, you're able to use it to make a bunch of money. So, you know, understanding kind of the nature of the offensive market is, is I think one of the things I always try to point people towards when, when I get asked that question, because it's a lot, yeah. there's a lot to it, but I think, you know, specifically if you find a juicy bug and the incentive's not high enough, what do you do? Mm. You know, part of what, what in particular a competitive model, like a bug bounty does is it kind of invokes the prisoner's dilemma. 
So if, if you and I have both found an issue in, in Sam's site, you're probably going to report it to him and get the bounty. I'm thinking about doing something sketchy with it. I also know that other people are looking, which means yep. other people may have found the thing that I've found. And if you get to it first, I miss out on the opportunity yep. to exploit as well as the bounty. So I think yeah. that dynamic actually helps quite a lot with with keeping that in check. Even to your point about the street cred, which is quite important in that space as yeah, well. Yeah, then there's all that too. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's right. So it adds another whole layer. We're, we're, we're towards the end. And I, if for people who obviously have follow-up questions with you, where can they reach you? Where can they... I, I feel like I should have renamed this to how do I start in bug bounty from an experienced professional? The kind of questions we've gone down, but for you've given all of us some hopes, which is always a good thing. Where can people reach sure. you if you have any follow-up questions or want to connect with you? Yeah, sure. On on Twitter, Twitter is usually the easiest, and you know, obviously LinkedIn, Casey Ellis, Twitter, Casey John Ellis. I've also got like a, a blog, personal blog, up at uh, cje.io. Yeah, any of those conversations that are bug crowd related will will have that conversation connect you up with the right folk around that but always always keen to talk about just general security stuff as well bug crowd is at bugcrowd.com on on twitter at you know just at bug crowd yeah i, I do want to touch on disclosure io as well a bit because we never got to sure. kind of touch on that so for people who don't know because you're kind of quite behind it you're trying to make it make it a thing so maybe if you can touch quickly touch on that as well if you don't mind yeah, for sure. So disclose IO, it's it's just disclose.io. I went a bit nutty on the on the IO domains when they first came out, which is <laughs> Oh, you're the reason why they're so expensive to have a dot IO domain. No, I think that's the I think that's the registrar's fault, not mine, but I'm probably <laughs> one of the reasons why some of the good names are missing. So yeah, so what disclose IO is a set of open source tooling to facilitate and to reinforce best practice in, in vulnerability disclosure. And some of the stuff that we were talking about earlier in the show around, like how do we turn this into a thing that, that actually helps companies, you know, sell products and, and, you know, reinforce the effort that they're putting into their security program, not just, oh, here's this other thing, this other security thing that you have to do. So yeah, it's basically a list of every program that's, that's known. It's all open source and, and common criteria for, so you can use it for whatever you need to or contribute to it. It's the list. It's the the open source vulnerability disclosure policy ter like terms. So DIO terms is that repo, which is you know things that, that like VDP terms that you can just copy and paste or you can use as a basis for for you know putting a disclosure policy together. We've translated right. that into a bunch of different regions. We're actually looking for help making sure that we've got it nailed down against Australian and New Zealand law. So if anyone's interested in helping out with that, do, do shout out. And then a seal. So if you go through all of this and you actually put safe harbor provisions into your, your VDP, there's the Disclose IO seal, which you get to basically put on your, on your site to say, hey, this is a thing that I do. Ultimately, the goal is for that to become almost like the green padlock for, for Vuln Disclosure. Oh. And I say that fully mindful of the fact that the green padlock has now disappeared. Like I would love that to be a future state <laughs> yeah. where this is a normal thing and you don't have to say it anymore, but you know, for where we are right now, it's, it's, you know, how do you, how do you make implementing this as simple as possible for, for vendors? And then for the hunters, how do you make it as simple as possible for them to have an understanding of what they can and can't do and for what mm. they do and don't have legal protection to do as a yeah. hacker? That was really one of the starting points for it is that, you know, hackers don't read the briefs. 
they don't go in the same way that you don't read through a eula when you yeah you know, it's, it's 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 one of those things where like we all should at scale people generally aren't doing that so given that plus the fact that lawyers aren't usually very used to writing this type of contract language and end up generally producing something that looks like war and peace how do we simplify all of that to to make it as as you know useful and as frictionless for as broad an audience as we can so that's what the Disclose.io project is. The other piece that we've just started working on is a is a community, you know, basically a community forum portal type of thing, which which is serving two purposes currently. One is to, you know, when folks are trying to disclose or report a an issue, a, a vulnerability, a privacy lapse, or an incident that they've discovered and they're having difficulty getting contact with with people on the receiving oh, yeah. side. It's basically yep. bringing in, you know like trying to turn that into a conversation where folk can can step in and assist because that's pretty much how it works if you don't have a program as as like myself and a few dozen other people that are just the guy that knows everyone that the people end up calling if they need help with that sort of stuff so you know i got to thinking like how can that scale and how can we turn yeah. that into something that's, that's more you know community powered I love the initiative and I, I, I definitely would definitely be talking a lot more about it as well. But Casey, thank you so much for coming in. I can't wait to kind of bring in more layers into this space when I bring you back in again, man. But th thanks so much for this. It was really, really awesome for me. Likewise. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a fun chat. Ah, thanks. Thank you for listening to that episode of Cloud Security Podcast. If you found some new information from that episode, we would appreciate if you share it with others. Share it with us as well if you have any good feedback or good learnings from the episode. We are on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you don't find us there, you can always go on our website, www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv to listen to the latest episode. We appreciate your support in helping us grow. It helps us bring more guests. It helps us support the channel. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and talk to you on the next episode.